You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? These words might very well have been written by Ezekiel as he sat by the river Kabar in the land of Babylon one hot July morning, 593 years before Jesus. How shall we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? It might be difficult for us to imagine the crisis that this question presented. Ezekiel had once been a priest in Jerusalem. That is, someone who served the very glory of God that made its home in the temple. The temple was no mere figurehead. It was where God made his name dwell. It was the one place on earth that God had, had promised to hear and answer their prayers. And so when people of the Old Testament, when people of Israel prayed, they prayed not towards the heavens. They knew God reigned over all the heavens. But they prayed towards the temple because that's where God promised to hear. That's where Ezekiel served as a priest. That's where God glory, God's glory dwelt. But now all of that had been ripped away from him. All of that had been ripped away when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah and, conquer, and took, taken off a bunch of its elites to live as exiles in Babylon, ripped from their homeland, separated from their temple, surrounded by idolatrous foreigners, and ruled by pagan overlords who knew nothing of the law of God and its justice. And today, I want us to sit with Ezekiel on these shores of the Kabar and recognize ourselves in exile. For Israel's exile is a type. It's more than just a historical event. It's a type. It's a portrait of the entire life of the Christian, the entire life of the church. To be a Christian is to live your whole life in exile, whether you are sitting on the shores of the Kabar or the Jordan or the Rhine or the Mississippi or the Columbia. First Peter makes this absolutely clear. It's one of the themes around which Peter writes his letter. He starts it like this. First Peter 1, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia. doesn't matter where they live. doesn't matter who rules them. doesn't matter where they are. Wherever you live, to be a Christian is to be an elect exile. Because it's not a matter of what country you live in, whether it's good or bad, whether it has just laws or unjust laws. It's not a matter of having a, a Christian king or a godly president. It's about whether you're in Rome or England or Nigeria or the United States. You live as an exile in Christ. A second century theologian summed it up like this in a letter when he was describing Christians. And this is what he said. For them, for Christians, any country, any foreign country is a homeland, a patria. And any homeland is a foreign country. Why is this? Well, because being a Christian means giving your allegiance to Jesus. It means having citizenship in his kingdom. And that changes your citizenship and everything else that relates to every other country on earth and every other thing on earth. Paul said this in Philippians, as we studied a couple weeks ago, that Christ holds your citizenship in heaven, and from it we await our Savior. 
And so Christians are called to await the coming kingdom, the coming new creation, and live like Abraham and Isaac and all the forefathers of old, as Hebrews 11 says, strangers and exiles on earth. And this is an important message for us to remember when we gather here on July 4th and we rightly give thanks for our nation and its independence. It's a good thing to do. It's a gift to live in a secure and stable government. There are countless things for which we have to give thanks to God for our nation. And I, I had a great time explaining to my, my sons, or my children yesterday, the, the Constitution and its threefold form of government and how it's worked through the ages and what a blessing it is. It's something for which I'm profoundly grateful and I hope to pass that gratitude on to my children. And I know, as I say all that and we gather there, I know that there's a great deal of fear. And I've heard it over the last weeks and months. There's fear about the future, about our country, about the direction it's going, whether it will endure. There's anxiety that we will succumb to totalitarianism, to communism, to despotism or anarchy. And I cannot allay any of these fears. That's not my job. My job is to help you see that these fears, justified or unjustified, whatever they may be, the uncertainties of our present time point you to something that has always been true. Something that has always been true. This is not our native land. America is not our patria. We are elect exiles, whether we dwell in Babylon, or Rome, or Galatia, or England, or the United States. Whether we are ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, or Nero, or George III, or Trump, or Biden. When you call Jesus your king, you are taking your seat next to Ezekiel on the banks of the Kabar River among the exiles. And when you do, you're ready to see what Ezekiel saw. Because there's some profoundly good things that God has to say to his people in exile. And this is the first one. The glory of the Lord is present with his people in exile. The glory of the Lord is present with his people in exile. This is the stunning revelation of the first chapter of Ezekiel's book, which if you've ever read it, you know is super bizarre. He's sitting by the banks of the river, and he sees a great storm coming out of the north. And out of the storm, this great shining object that is, is almost impossible to understand just by reading. It's, it's this chariot of four burning creatures with wheels next to them, and there's like an expanse and then a throne and a figure that's too bright to see on top of it. And we, we don't have to get lost in all those details because Ezekiel helpfully sums up for us this strange vision that he sees sitting by the banks of the river. In verse 120, chapter 129, he says, Such was the appearance of the, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So in other words, this strange object Ezekiel sees is the rolling throne room of God. Think of all the infinite majesty and terror and holiness and mystery of being in God's presence and repackage it as an RV. That's what Ezekiel's seeing, rolling into his neighborhood in Babylon. And this is profoundly surprising for Ezekiel, because the glory of the Lord, that's, that's God's presence on earth. That belongs in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple hadn't been burnt down yet, by the way. That's what came down on Mount Sinai when Israel had been brought out of the land, and God said, I brought you out of Egypt to dwell with you. And the, the glory of the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai, and then it comes down on the tabernacle when they build the tabernacle, and then it comes and inhabits the temple. The glory of the Lord is the Lord himself present in his creation. And here it is, rolling on the streets of Babylon, kicking up dust 
next to the Kabar River. See, when he describes, and what's important about this, this is not some vision. Sometimes Ezekiel will have visions that take him to some other place. Sometimes he'll have visions of something that's going on somewhere else. That's not what's going on here. When he describes the wheels in chapter 1, he specifically says, I saw the wheels on the ground in Babylonian dirt. The glory of the Lord trundling along the banks of the Kabar River. So what does this mean? God will not let exile separate him from his people. God does not let exile separate him from his people. To be in exile is not to be forsaken by God. It's not to be lost. Exile is indeed judgment for Israel's sin and idolatry, and the prophets are very clear about that. But it is not the end of God's faithfulness to them. It is not the end of God's desire to dwell with them and to be with them and to keep working on them, to complete what he started in them. God is determined to dwell with his people. And that's what he did definitively 600 years later, when again the glory of the Lord walked the dust of another river, the River Jordan, not as a rolling throne room RV, but as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Now to see this, to see that the glory of the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, I could go into a super complicated and really interesting argument about the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament. I'm going to spare you that. I'm just going to ask you to trust me. That what Ezekiel is actually seeing is the second person of the Trinity. He's actually getting a vision into the presence of God's very person, the Son, the eternal Son, shining in all the radiance of who he is on the banks of Babylon. Now, just to give you a sample of that fun, complicated argument, the glory of the Lord is both in the New Old Testament, it's spoken about as God. And it's also spoken of as someone different from God. And this actually happens a lot in the Old Testament with the word of the Lord, or the glory of the Lord, or the, um, the hand of the Lord. What's the other one? I forget the other one. Doesn't matter. John 1.1 does the same thing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, that is, distinct from him, and yet the word was God. That same weird relationship of being other than God and yet being God, that is what we talk about when we're talking about the Son. And that is the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel sees. The Son who once, who, who in our, finally becomes incarnate in the man Jesus, who fulfills God's desire to dwell with his people definitively once and for all. Jesus of Nazareth is the glory of the Lord with human flesh. Why, why is this? What's so special about Jesus being the glory of the Lord? Well, for one, it's, it's him, God fulfilling his desire to dwell with us in exile. Because he came to walk the dirty streets of Judea. He came to Israel while it was in exile in its own land, later on oppressed by Romans and, and displaced by their overlords. And he didn't waste time conquering the Romans, as though they were the true source of Israel's or our exile. He conquered their master. He conquered the master of all who used terror and violence as the way to get security in this world. He conquered sin and death and the devil. Because that's the true source of all our exile. That's the true source of, of the deepest exile of the human condition, that our sin was our refusal to live in God's kingdom on his terms. And that sinful refusal leads to us being expelled from the garden, expelled from God's kingdom, where we have to dwell in the deadlands of human history, where the prince of the power of the air, the devil, rules and reigns as a usurper, the usurper in whose image every other human tyrant is formed. 
So how does Jesus conquer this usurper? By hiding the glory of the Lord in the weakness and frailty of a human being. By hiding the glory of the Lord, what dazzled Ezekiel's eyes, now with skin on, looking very ordinary, so that what once was hidden behind the temple, veil, the glory and majesty of the Lord that dwelled and destroyed people who came in unworthily, now that glory of the Lord can walk the streets and touch beggars and heal them and be with the lonely and speak to people and confront rebellious and idolatrous people to forgive sinful and treacherous people and confront the powers of darkness and cast out demons. By concealing the glory of the Lord within himself, Jesus allows himself to be treated like any other human being, to be betrayed and murdered, so that death would grab hold of him and death would try to devour him. But death can no more devour the glory of the Lord than a shark can swallow the sea. When the death took Jesus, it was undone. The glory of the Lord burst its bars and shattered the gates of hell and won freedom for all whom death had claimed, for all whom sin had ravished and all whom the devil, the devil had tyrannized. Jesus is God's fulfillment of his determination to be present with his people and to drive out the forces of darkness in this world and free his people from exile. And that is where Ezekiel comes in. Because God's determined not just to be present, but to keep working. God's presence always does something. And the glory of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and this gets us to our passage today, to give him a job to do, to make him a prophet, to ordain him as a prophet. This is Ezekiel's ordination. That's what the small portion of the text that we're reading is about. The glory of the Lord comes and speaks to Ezekiel in verse 3. He's, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Their descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, they are rebellious, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So here's what's important about this passage. When Ezekiel sees the whole glory of the Lord RV, the rest of the exiles don't see that. God could give them a vision of it, but he doesn't. He's determined to be present with them, not to their eyes, but to their ears. Because Israel, he says, has a listening problem. They don't like to listen to God's word. They don't like to obey it. And so the glory of the Lord is determined to be present with the exiles through the speaking of the prophets. Through the speaking of Ezekiel, God is saying, I'm here, I'm still with you, I'm still working on you, I have not given up on you, Israel. That's actually the most notable part of this text, is it spares, it's unflinching about Israel's rebel, rebellion and failure. I send you to the people of Israel, the nations of rebels. That word, nations of rebels, it uses a word that is, is Gentiles, traditionally referred to non-Jews, goyim, saying, I'm sending you to Israel who lives as though you're not my people, but you're still my people because I'm determined to complete what I started in you. I'm still present, still working by sending dudes who are going to say in front of you, thus says the Lord God, to speak to Israel God's warning and his promises. So that's Ezekiel's job. He's a prophet to a rebellious Israel. Whether they listen or whether they don't listen, because the goal is not necessarily whether they to hear or not hear. That may or may not happen. What's the goal? To make it clear that God's still here. 
even in exile, to make it clear that God has not given up. Because if there are no more prophets, then that's saying that God is done. God's finished his work or he's given up. But God is still working for Israel, even in their exile, even in their rebellion. And Ezekiel's ministry may not get many hearers, God says. And it probably won't because they're a rebellious house, right? But it makes one thing clear. God is still here. He's still with us in exile. And if this doesn't sound like a very fun first call for Ezekiel, you're not wrong. At the end of his commissioning in chapter 3, past our passage, Ezekiel, he is honest about his lack of a post-ordination barbecue. I went away in bitterness and anger and spirit. I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv near the Kebar River, and I sat there among them deeply distressed for seven days. It's a temptation, I think, that's not uncommon, right? The church has a prophetic call of its own. Just as Jesus sent out those two disciples in our gospel lesson, he sends out his church to all nations to make disciples. And in Acts 2, when the Spirit fills the church, we hear that this, this is not just about pastors, it's about all, all the church. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. The whole church has a prophetic call, and Ezekiel, at least, God specifies, I'm not calling you to Babylon and their strange language, I'm calling you to Israel. They're enough for you to handle. The church is called to the whole world, they're called to our country, to our nation, to our neighbors, to our families, to the people that God has placed us around, to go and say, thus says the Lord, whether they listen or refuse to listen. And let's not be shy about it. There's fewer and fewer people in our nation listening these days, isn't there? Fewer people are even open to listening. Fewer people identify as Christians. The teachings of Scripture are increasingly ignored or twisted or rejected outright as some kind of bigotry. People with power use that power to harass and extort people who believe or just exclude us from the public square entirely. The rebellion is real as it always has been. It has always been. It has always taken courage to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. It was no, more, it was no easier when our culture twisted the Bible to justify racism and slavery it was just as, took just as much courage to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, as it does now when we twist the Bible and for, to justify all kinds of sexual immorality. And this rebellion, wherever we encounter it, tempts us to be like Ezekiel, to depart in bitterness and resentment and anger. It's tempting for us to retreat to our hideaways of secluded piety and repeat stories of people's hard-heartedness and persecution to justify our own bitterness towards the people we are called to speak to. It's tempting for us, like Ezekiel, to go and dwell among the exiles of America living near the River Columbia, not speaking, but simply being in distress. And that is why we, as Ezekiel, cannot do this alone. No prophet can do anything alone. But that's the third and final thing we need to see as we sit by the river Kebar with Ezekiel, God's spirit empowers his prophets for faithfulness. God's spirit empowers his prophets for faithfulness. Even in the simplest things. It's kind of a silly, almost seems like a silly thing, but it's not really. In chapter 2, the beginning of our passage, Son of man got the glory of the Lord, that's the one talking, says, Son of man, stand on your feet, I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking. 
Don't miss that. God commands, do something. And then in that very command, in that very speaking, he gives his spirit, and that spirit accomplishes it within Ezekiel. Even this something as simple as standing him on his feet. God's word is powerful. God's word bears God's own spirit and accomplishes the work that God sets out to do with it. The glory of the Lord that rolled along the Kebar came not simply to send out Ezekiel to some lonely task by himself of prophesying to rebels. It came to speak, and in speaking, to give him God's own spirit, who sets him on his feet and carries him out to that prophecy and gives him words to speak. And as God speaks to you this day, we just sang it, God is speaking by his spirit. In this promise, this story of Jesus the king of all creation, that in him you have citizenship in God's eternal kingdom, that in him you have victory over death, have forgiveness of sins, that you have a future free from every pain and sorrow and loss and anguish, and that all that's a gift given simply by calling Jesus your Lord through faith. That promise sets you on your feet and gives you courage to live as someone who fears neither death, nor pain, nor war, nor famine, nor rejection. His Spirit gives us words to speak to our friends and loved ones and children, letting them know that God has not given up on us, on our nation, on our families. He's still sending men and women to say, thus says the Lord, to us here, even in our sin, even in our rebellion. The glory of the Lord is present here, kicking up dust along the banks of the Columbia, He's not finished with his rebellious creation. He's not given up on his desire to dwell with his people. His spirit still works through its word, standing men and women like you on your feet, forgiven and free, giving you hearts to believe, tongues to confess, and voices to sing the songs of Zion in this foreign land. Thus says the Lord. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.